Well, good morning to each one. Greetings in Jesus' name. And yes, thank you, Josh, for explaining why I am preaching here today. Appreciate that. I enjoyed the Sunday school lesson. The thought of seeking the Lord while he may be found struck me in a new way this morning. You know, that initial coming to Christ is so important, but then it's a lifetime of continuing to seek the Lord. For a text, for a text this morning, I invite you to Colossians 1, verse 20. I invite you to turn there and meditate for a minute. I have a couple things I'd like to do in preparation for the sermon. So turn there and meditate if you would. Okay, Colossians 1.20. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. I would like to begin this morning by reflecting on the cross. As I'm sure you know, today is Palm Sunday. Next Sunday we celebrate Easter. And between those two historical dates stands the cross. Many in our world will celebrate Easter. It's a big deal. It's the only time that some people go to church. However, few will remember the cross. It's not that our nation is not familiar with the cross. We see crosses every day of our life. Many churches have them on their steeples. There's even one on the front of our church. And I ask you this morning, did you notice that cross when you came in this morning? You see, crosses have become so familiar to us. And like any other symbol, it can lose its power in our lives if we become too familiar with it. In other words, we can become desensitized to the cross. For many, the cross is nothing more than a piece of jewelry that is used to adorn the ear or the neck. For some, the cross is an icon designed for worship. They kneel before the cross and pray to it. Some see the cross as ornament, as an ornament that contains supernatural power. They hang them in their homes. They hang them from the rearview mirror in their car. They carry it around to ward off evil. What does the cross mean to you? What does the cross mean to you and I today? I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'd like to read 18 through 24. First Corinthians 1, 18 through 24. The message of the cross goes out to all people of all nations. Each person that hears the message must either believe in it or reject it. And notice as I read here in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 24, the contrast between those that accept and those that reject the message. Verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? 
Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews, for the Jews required a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jew and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Here we see two groups of people. The first group is them that is perishing, and the second group is those that are saved. The cross was offensive to the Jews. Notice verse 23. Unto the Jews a stumbling block. A stumbling block is something that trips up a person and causes them to fall. I found it interesting, if you go back to that Greek word that stumbling block comes from, it has the thought of stumbling and falling into a trap or a snare. To the Jews, the cross was a scandal. The Messiah being nailed to a cross? No way. They were looking for a king, a king who would deliver them from the Romans, a king who would go forth before them into battle. The Jews literally stumbled over the cross. And then the cross was foolishness to the wise Gentiles. Verse 23, unto the Greeks, foolishness. For the educated Greeks, the cross was nothing but foolishness. The virgin birth, God becoming flesh, God being nailed to a tree, the resurrection, it didn't make any sense. It was nothing but foolishness to them. But then notice verse 24. But for a few, the cross is an object of power and wisdom. Paul says that those who have grasped the true message of the cross understand that it is not weak and foolish. It is instead the power of God and the wisdom of God. Today, I would like to declare the message of the cross. It's not a weak message. It's not a foolish message. It's a message of peace that is filled with the awesome power and the wisdom of an almighty God. Peace through the blood of his cross. Peace through blood. Peace through blood. This is a paradox, is it not? Think about that. When man tries making peace with blood, the results are horrific. Think about the destruction of war. Recently I read that two-thirds of the deaths in the Civil War were from sickness and disease. Out of the thousands of deaths in the Civil War, two-thirds of them came from sickness and disease. That is the result of man making peace with blood. Think with me for a few moments about the blood of the cross. The blood began to flow long before the first nails were driven. The blood began to flow in the Garden of Gethsemane. As Christ prayed, he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. And people have, have scoffed over this over the years, but from what I understand, it is physically possible to sweat drops of blood.
Christ was scourged or beaten by Pilate's soldiers. He was spit upon. His beard was pulled out. A crown of thorns was placed upon his head. And it says that they hit him with the palms of their hands. It also says, also says that they hit him with reeds. And I think of reeds as like a, a piece of bamboo. And you know, today is Palm Sunday. And you know, they laid their branches out for Christ to come into Jerusalem. And then a few days later, they took those same reeds and they hit him. It says in Isaiah 52, 14, it says that his visage was so marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. And that word visage has the thought of his appearance. His, his appearance was so disfigured that he could hardly see. And then after all this horrible treatment, he was sentenced to die. And then he suffered again as he struggled to carry his cross. The cross was designed for criminals. Nailing a criminal to the cross was the civil government's way of saying, folks, crime does not pay. This is evil. This is the result of evil. You may remember the gallows in the story of Esther. In Esther, the gallows was a sharpened wooden pole that the body of a criminal was impaled upon. Haman, along with the guards, Big Than and Tirish, were executed this way. They were hung on a gallow, not from a gallow. And as horrible as the Persian execution may sound, the Roman way of execution was worse. Death by the cross was a longer process than what the Persians used. I have something here that I want to read. And what I have to read here is not for the faint of heart, but I believe it's time for us to come back to what the cross was really about. This article is taken from a medical journal, from what I understand. And it says, the title is, this is how, or this is the horrible way that crucifixion actually kills you. And I'll read the article, take just a few minutes. Crucifixion remains a familiar idea, even though it's a punishment from the distant past. It's so familiar that we no longer consider of the physical realities of it. Those realities are some of the most gruesome ever known. Here's how crucifixion actually kills people. Crucifixion stopped becoming a regular practice long before anyone cared how it killed people. This was good news for all humanity, but it did leave scientists speculating. The method of crucifixion is brutal, but in terms of wounds and exposure, people have survived worse. How did crucified people die? And keep in mind, this is not written from a Christian perspective. To understand how people died, we have to look at the many methods of crucifixion. Today, we have a very limited idea of crucifixion. There was no official, regularly practiced method. Historical records say that people were not just nailed in the pose we see on religious crucifixes, but were caught to the crosses in different posture by way of jest. People were crucified upside down or with their hands together. 
Even when people were crucified in the way we imagine, the process today, few victims were crucified with nails through their hands. Putting a person's whole weight on relatively delicate piece of flesh would tear the hand enough that the person could pull the nail through the whole hand and free their upper bodies. People were crucified through the wrist, which were harder to tear loose. Nailing a person's feet to the upright section of the cross wasn't an afterthought. Precisely how the lower body was treated could affect how long a person lived. Most victims simply had their feet nailed into the wood so that their knees were bent at a 45 degree angle. Some had their legs broken. Whether this was an act of cruelty or mercy depends on one's perspective. Hanging from the arms for a considerable length of time is painful. Once the muscles give out, it is excruciating. Shoulders separate from the sockets and the overall arm can lengthen by inches. Most people would try to support themselves by putting pressure on their injured feet. But with their feet bent and their feet nailed through, it was only a matter of time before their leg strength gave away as well. Breaking their legs was horrible, but on the other hand, allowing them to support themselves prolonged their suffering. And now the medical side of crucifixion. What part of the suffering led to death is debatable. Though this, through the centuries, doctors have looked into it and come to different conclusions. Some say that, that crucifixion alone wasn't enough to kill a person, and so the victims probably died of exposure or thirst after days on a cross. One doctor believed that crucified people, after much torment, died voluntary surrender of life. Some think that the wounds elsewhere in the body sent a blood clot to the heart. One expert in medicine, Frederick uh, Zubagi, actually tied himself and volunteers to a cross to monitor what, physical, what physically takes place during a crucifixion. He concluded that victims die from hypovolemic shock. This condition sets in when the body has lost so much blood and fluid that the heart can't continue to function. I think I'll stop with that right there. There's more to that article, but I believe that's enough for now. I don't know how many of you get the uh, Virginia Gazette, but did any of you read this article on the cross? It's, it's really good. I, if you still have that paper or if it's not too far down in your trash can, I'd advise you to get it out and read it. Uh, one of the best articles I think I've seen in the paper for years Okay, turn if you would to Hebrews 12, verse 2. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking unto Jesus. You know, the two thieves deserved their cross. Death was the price for the sin that they had committed. Jesus, however, was totally innocent. He was the perfect Lamb of God, without spot and without blemish. Yet he willingly went to the cross and died for you and I. <clears throat> the two thieves 
were totally helpless in their condition. For them to escape the cross would have been almost impossible. Jesus could have escaped the cross. He could have called 10,000 angels. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah 53. I'd like to read 4 and 5. <clears throat> Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. And notice this next phrase, notice this next phrase, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The chastisement or the punishment of our peace was upon him. Through Christ's death on the cross, through the punishment that he endured, we can be reconciled or brought back to God. We can be purchased back to him. I come back to our text. And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile. And that word reconcile has the thought of reconcile fully. You know, you can reconcile your checkbook. But when it's reconciled fully, it comes out to the very cent with the bank. You know what I mean? This word reconcile in our verse has the thought of being reconciled fully, completely, correctly. All things unto himself, by him, I say. Whether there be things in earth or things in heaven, it's complete. It's reconciled fully. And so let's think now of peace. I like to think about peace. We're talking about peace through the blood of his cross. The dictionary definition of peace, peace is the end of hostility. Peace is ceasefire, peace is people getting along, peace is a state of tranquility or quiet. For the world, peace is only an outward expression. We stop fighting, we quit hitting each other. For the Christian, peace is more than an outward expression. God's peace is a whole peace, a peace that is complete. That completeness gives us a peace that is inward as well as outward. The world's peace is a horizontal peace at its very best. And I'd like for you to look at the cross. The horizontal peace is the short peace. That's about how long the world's peace is. But God's peace is a vertical peace which becomes real in the horizontal. God's peace is a vertical peace goes up and down, and then it becomes real in the horizontal. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 14. In this chapter, Jesus is gathered with his disciples. In a few hours, he will be leaving them, and he shares with them some final words of encouragement. And I'll read the first seven verses at this time. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. 
I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whether I go, ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus said unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. For the disciples, this was a time of sorrow. It was a time of confusion. Jesus said that he would die. He said that he was leaving. How would they go on? Notice Thomas and his response. He said, Lord, how would we know the way? We can only imagine the turmoil that was in their hearts. Jesus knew their hearts. He was aware of that turmoil. Jesus says, I have something to replace that turmoil with, and that is my peace. And we find that in verse 27. Let's pick up reading at verse 25. John chapter 14. These things have I spoken unto you, being yet present with you. But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whether whatsoever I have given unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye love me, ye would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it come to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of the world cometh and hath nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father giveth, gave me commandment, even so I do, arise, let us go hence. I want to focus now on verse 27. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I want to consider three ways that Jesus' peace can become our peace. The first way that we'll consider is peace is supplied through Jesus Christ. We will notice several ways that peace is supplied through Jesus Christ. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Jesus promised to leave his peace, a peace that is perfect. Isaiah 26 verse 3 says, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. His peace is supplied by his presence. Psalm 4 verse 8, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me to dwell in safety. His peace is supplied by his power. 
Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 4. I'd like to read several verses here. Mark 4, 35 through 41. As we think of the peace being supplied through Jesus Christ. And then, let's start over. Mark 4, 35. And the same day, when the even was come, he said unto them, Let us pass over unto the other side. And when they had sent away the multitude, they took him, even as he was in the ship. And there also was with him other little ships. And there also, and there arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship, so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared him exceedingly, and said one to another, What manner, is, what manner of man is this, that even the wind and sea obey him? Well, verse 39, we have the words of Jesus. Peace, be still. It says, The wind ceased, and there was a great calm. You know, if Jesus has the power to calm the storms of nature, then he certainly has the power to calm the storms in our lives. His power brings peace to our troubled hearts. His peace is supplied through prayer. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the promise is, and the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. His peace is supplied to you by his promise. I give, I give. Not as the world giveth. You know, the world's peace is only a suggested peace. It's not genuine. We talked about that in our men's Sunday school class today. The world's peace is temporal. God's peace is eternal. The world's peace is superficial. It only applies to the mind. God's peace applies deep into the heart. The world's peace is artificial. They try drugs. They try alcohol. They try possessions. And they may have a sense of peace for a time, but that peace will not last. The world's peace is found as they escape from reality. God gives us peace as we face reality. God's peace is real. It can be experienced daily as we go throughout life. The world's peace is fragile. It is quickly broken. God's peace is built on the foundation of his own character and attributes. The second way that God's peace can become our peace is when God applies his peace to our hearts. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. God applies his peace where we need it the most, our hearts. Our hearts is where we hurt. Our hearts is where there is turmoil. The heart is the center of our being. Notice verse 1 of chapter 14. Let not your hearts be troubled. Ye believe in God, 
Ye believe in God this morning? Jesus says, believe also in me. God applies his peace to our hearts as we reach out to him in faith. Ye believe, faith in God, faith in the creator. Believe also in me, faith in Jesus Christ. As we believe in God by faith, as we believe in Jesus Christ by faith, God in his faithfulness will apply peace to our hearts. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well? No, not the woman at the well, but the woman that touched the hem of his garment. Do you remember what he said? He said, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and behold of thy plague. How about you and I? Are we trusting in Jesus? Are we living by faith? Turn, if you would, to Philippians chapter 4 as we think about the peace that has been made possible through his cross. Not our cross, but his cross. Philippians 4, verse, we'll begin at verse 4 and read through 9. And you may notice several of these verses I read earlier, but we're going to read them again. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, thank on these things. Notice verse 9. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. The last point I have on peace, how Christ's peace can become our peace. God's peace overcomes fear and gives strength. The last phrase of verse 27, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. God's peace brings strength to our hearts. You know, fear does exactly the opposite. Fear robs strength. Fear leaves us powerless. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, for God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. That spirit of fear that we deal with in our lives, that is not from God. God gives power, he gives love, and a sound mind. Psalm 29, verse 11. The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, 
and God and the God of love and peace shall be with you. God is waiting for us today to give him all that trouble of our hearts. The turmoil, the fear, the uncertainty, the grief, all those things that weigh down our hearts. Give it all to God and let him fill you with peace, the peace that is possible through his cross. Jesus says, come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest to your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. The word rule in that verse has the thought of to governor or prevail. Let the peace of God governor or prevail in your hearts, to the which ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Today, as we have considered the cross and the peace that is made possible through it, what is our response? What should be our response? Turn, if you would, to Luke 9, 23. Luke 9, 23. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Are you willing to take up the cross of Christ? Are you willing to deny yourself and follow him? Are you a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? Is the cross before you and the world behind you? Has the cross made a difference for you? Can you say with the Apostle Paul in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If you notice the cross, the upright shows what Christ has done for us and is doing for us. Our response is the cross bar. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to read now from Ephesians chapter 2, and I'll ask that you just listen, and I would like for you to just reflect on the cross and those verses that we have looked at today. But I'm going to be reading from Ephesians 2, 14 through 22. As we think about the cross and as we think about the peace. Ephesians 2, 14. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall a partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so 
making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you, which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him we have both access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. And I'll close with part of a hymn, I believe it's the chorus, O can it be, upon a tree my Savior died for me. My heart is filled, my soul is thrilled to thank he died for me. We'll call for a closing song. <laughs>